All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Ben Dominich, happy to join you once more for what has become an annual tradition this time of year, our conversation with Christopher Kimball. He is formerly the founder of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Illustrated and is now at Milk Street. He has a new cookbook out that is uh, something I would recommend that you order now if you have been struggling to find something for a home chef in your life uh, on vegetables, which we started out our conversation conversation about. And then we turn to a number of different uh, elements of not just holiday cooking, but other questions, uh, gifts and potential ideas uh, for the cooks in your life and new things that you can try in the new year uh, when it comes to cooking. Christopher Kimball coming up next. Since vegetables and plants uh, had to be uh, because they were inexpensive and available, had to be at the center of the plate. They had to come up with ways of making them interesting. So they char the food directly over fire, for example, or in a skillet. They use chilies or fermented sauces or spices or herbs. So they found ways to infuse or add big flavors Two things that, you know, from a Western perspective, you'd say doesn't pack a big punch. You know, a steak everyone thinks of is a big umami you know, delivery system. But, you know, if you do vegetables the right way, they also have big flavor. So I think pretty much everyone's familiar with, you know, a combination of olive oil and salt and, and garlic and pepper and, and an oven that work great on a lot of different vegetables. How do you kind of stretch yourself or what's the, the first thing uh, you should maybe think about for a side dish, either this holiday season or just as a goal for the new year uh, to try to get out beyond that uh, normal combination of things where, you, you know, just let's just toss them in those things and, and throw them in an oven and that'll make it better. Well, it does make it better. And I still do that, but you can, uh, for example, uh, for some reason, strange reason, cauliflower is now, you cannot publish a recipe today on cauliflower and not have an A plus <laughs> success with it. Uh, you know, it's like the kiwi from the seventies or something. So, um, you know, people slice them into steaks, people roast the, the it whole, people put tahini on it. People put, uh, you know, herbs, fresh herbs, people put duca, other spices on it. So, it really goes down back to the pantry, right? I mean, the rest of the world has a great pantry. Um, my mother's pantry had 10-year-old spices, baking powder, baking soda, lorry seasoning salt. You know, we just didn't have a pantry. Uh, and so if you have soy sauce and fish sauce and mirin, if you have some spice blends like zatar, which is a Middle Eastern blend, which goes on everything. It's great. Uh, you might have, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, harissa from North, from, uh, from Northern Africa, which is a spice paste. Um, so th there's a lot of things you can keep in your refrigerator or pantry, which means if you go to roast your vegetables at 450 degrees, great, but you can also toss them in those spices. You can use the herbs at the end. You know, there, there's some good examples of this. For example, in a lot of Chinese cooking, you might boil vegetables or steam them, put them on a platter, put some minced ginger and scallion on top, 
and then take a quarter cup of oil and get it really hot and pour it on top. And that sizzles, right? And, and it just brings out the flavor of the ginger and the scallion. So uh, in, in Indian cooking, there's something called tarka, T-A-R-K-A, where they take oil, like a quarter cup of oil, heat it up with a spice, like uh, Aleppo pepper, for example, which is a fruity red pepper. They used to be from Syria. Now you can get it from Turkey. Well, or whatever spice you want. It, and it flavors the oil with a spice. And so if you have a lentil soup or whatever you have, you just drizzle this spiced oil, hot spiced oil on top. So it doesn't almost matter what the base vegetable is. It's just a question of how you're going to add flavor to it, not just through the cooking process, but also through what goes on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have many questions as always that are submitted uh, by our readers and writers in advance of our discussion. Uh, and one that I actually got from more than one person was the, the best and most creative ways uh, to prepare deer meat. Uh, I, I had some version of, I've got a freezer full of whitetail and black buck and yeah. I've run out of ideas. Multiple people, I guess they've been spending their time uh, out hunting a bit. Uh, what is your uh, recommendations regarding that? Well, I just spent five days in the woods in my hunting cabin, so I, <laughs> I, 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 I like the question. I mean, well, it's sort of like um, like rabbit. That is the the, ten, the loin, tenderloin, or the back strap, whatever you want to call it. It's a very tender piece of meat, and that should be cooked to medium rare. So, you know, high heat, quickly cook it, um, just like you would, you know, a beef tenderloin. Uh, the legs, however, um, you know, are lean. Um and you really need to think about cooking them very low and slow. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of marinating in general because marinades don't tend to penetrate meat very deeply. But if you use a marinade with salt in it, uh, it's sort of like brining. Um, it's not going to add a lot of flavor to the inside of the meat, but it will keep the meat a little like a soy sauce base, for example. We'll keep the meat... Uh, more tender and moist because uh, as you roast the meat or cook the meat, it tends to retain uh, its liquid better. So any kind of salt-based marinade actually works pretty well, low and slow. Um, you know, there are juniper berries, I think, are, are one of the things that go great with game, whether it's rabbit or venison. Hmm. Uh, but it is a problem because it's particularly lean. So Again, uh, low and slow, and a marinade that has a salt base will be helpful. One practical question that I have is, it's every time that I come around to this time of year, there's this tension between wanting to try something new that will be interesting and, and different, but also the challenge that you don't necessarily get a dry run. You know, by the time that, uh, you know, I've made this, this year's, you know, turkey, I've made multiple turkeys and I would say that, you know, to my great and good fortune, knock on wood, you know, I've only had one that I would consider a failure. Um, so, but I still, you know, I've got a bit of experience, but if I were to cook, you know, venison for, uh, you know, a, a group of people, even if it's just, you know, say, you know, eight to 10 people, you know, a, a, a you know, traditional family gathering, um, that that's a little bit more intense and there's a good bit more pressure. So how do you balance that wanting to do something new with, 
you, you don't get as many cracks at it uh, beforehand unless you're willing to sort of make that that venison in advance and, and see what happens. Well, um, I think this goes down to the philosophy of life you hold, <laughs> which which is, of course, you know, that's how I'd answer this. Um, I don't really care. I mean, first of all, no one's going to remember the next day. I just got to tell you, 48 hours later, if you made a venison stew and it was tough, it, it, this is now not, this is history. This is not something anyone's going to remember, especially in an age of social media. So uh, it, this is going to be a momentary embarrassment. Uh, and alcohol can certainly help smooth that <laughs> over. Uh, and they also, and also don't forget, you know, a meal has more than one thing. So you have multiple opportunities to fail <laughs> if you look at it from a half full perspective uh, or, or be successful. Uh, secondly, I, I don't feel um, so. So I, I don't, you know, if I fail, I fail. Uh, secondly, I don't feel a great need, especially around the holidays to actually do something different. Um, you know, my wife's mother was from Austria uh, so we make Tafelspitz, which is essentially boiled beef with vegetables and horseradish sauce. Um, I make a trifle, you know, well, those things I've made for years. So I don't, um, there are times when I do like to completely improvise and once in a while I would, uh, this year I did, I did have a Turkey failure, actually speaking of Turkey, mm. I, I did it on the green egg because in Vermont at the farm, I only have one oven. Mm. So I figured, well, okay, you know, I, I was doing a bunch of stuff in the oven. So I threw in the green egg, which I love. It's just mm -hmm. a great way to cook something, but you know, a smoky Turkey. I don't know. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't love it. it. It came out fine. It's just, I didn't like the smoke taste with the rest of the things on the table, but you know, everyone else liked it and it was fine. So I, I just say, yeah, do whatever you want. And <laughs> like Julia child, you just act like Julia child. You know, if you went over to her house and had something that you didn't like, she wouldn't care. <laughs> I mean, she, she just go like, Hey, I invited you over. Mm -hmm. I cooked for you. And now you're going to complain. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, the other way to look at it is you're the host, you worked, you bought the food, you cooked it, you know, you've done your part and whether mm -hmm. it's, it's an A or a C, I don't know. I'm not sure it matters. Uh, do you have uh, any take on uh, the food supply chain issues that people have been facing uh, in the, the past couple of months and, or any advice about um, the way that people could deal with that or, or think of substitutions um, based on what they have available in their areas? Yeah, well, for, first of all, food and supply chains is a big topic. And I'm a huge believer in, uh, you know, having the Department of Agriculture, which will never happen, uh, support a locally based food economy. Mm -hmm. And by that, I, I mean, uh, you know, small farmers tend to get left out of the equation, although I think they've gotten some help recently. Uh, but what's really missing here is the processing and distribution infrastructure. So if you're a, uh, a beef or, or, or a pig farmer, let's say in Vermont, uh, there are very few processing facilities, right? There's no infrastructure. There's no distribution facility. So, you can grow, you know, the livestock, but getting it to market, all that part is missing. So I think one of the ways to solve this problem of supply chain, which means long supply chains from other countries, right, uh, is to 
build the infrastructure for local uh, production. Now, local production doesn't solve all the problems, and I'm not against French cheese, you know, or whatever. Mm. I, I, I like to see a mix of things, but I, th- I think that infrastructure is really the problem. And if there was better local infrastructure, you, you would have more access to more food locally, which would give you a more secure supply chain. So I think that's no one ever talks about infrastructure and food, and I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, on the on the substitution side of things, uh, I haven't really run into that too much, ex- instead, except for perhaps a few brands that I would normally have purchased something not being available in the supermarket where, you know, I would have to get a different can of, of something, uh, you know, that didn't necessarily have that. Uh, have you run into any challenges on that in terms of sourcing things or, or is it just that by, by dint of being connected to the trilateral commission of food, you know, <laughs> all, all spices are available to you at all times. <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think it comes down to money, right? I mean, if, if you're buying online and you're willing to spend the money, mm-hmm. you can get almost anything. I think the question is if you're living as a lot of people are in a tight budget and food is an important part of that, what do you do? I, I think um, w- w- one suggestion I can make is, you know, I, I get a delivery this around Boston. There's a, uh, a, a company called I think family dinner and they source from local farms including fish and beef and other things and deliver to your home every week. Mm. And so, and you never know what you're going to get. So on Saturday morning, I get a bag of stuff. And so I've gotten used to now just cooking, you know, I got some fish, which I made and I had some kale and I had some potatoes. So cooking what's available is what people used to do Mm -hmm. until fairly recently. So instead of planning your meal ahead of time, based on looking at a recipe, if you start the other way around, the way people have for tens of thousands of years, that's really helpful because then you also become a better cook because you adapt to whatever is good. I mean, you know, don't get me started on, you know, tomatoes, winter tomatoes or winter strawberries or, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I you know, I, I have you ever picked up a supermarket tomato? And put it up to your nose and had any, you know, any aroma? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, and so sometimes it's better to cook with what you have mm-hmm. or what you can find. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's that's the reverse. But I think that's probably the better way to do it uh, if, if you want to take the time to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, the On the tomato front, uh, just because it's, it is uh, similarly to you, it is one of my great frustrations. Uh, the only thing that I've found is that cherry tomatoes seem to do a little bit better in the supermarket experience uh, yeah. just, uh, compared to others. They do. But, but, but is there, what's the reason for that? Is, is there a reason for it? Yeah, because tomatoes uh, are not picked ripe mm-hmm. because they have to be shipped. And uh, actually a friend of mine wrote a book about tomatoes uh, a few years ago. He talked about the Florida tomatoes are essentially grown in sand. <laughs> no. So, so as you know, the soil, the composition of the soil is critical for flavor. Mm-hmm. And so they're not being grown, you know, with a, a tremendous amount of organic material and minerals and other things to add flavor, but they're also been bred for color, shape and shipping characteristics. And so when I was a kid, 
you know, they, they had a tremendous flavor and aroma and now they're being, uh, designed for other purposes. I, I, in defense of those companies, however, uh, you know, we still go out and buy them. Yeah. <laughs> so and people will not buy a disfigured apple or tomato, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, we buy with our eyes in the supermarket. So they're simply giving us what we want uh, in many respects. So if we really wanted to change it, we'd have to just stop buying them, mm-hmm. but that's not going to happen. Uh, back to some uh, reader questions. Uh, how long should you rest a turkey or similar Christmas fowl? I've heard uh, some say that you should rest it as long as you've cooked it, but I've never heard a way to convince grandma turkey shouldn't be served piping hot. So have not been able to hold the carving by more than 15 minutes with full distractions engaged. I think that's, well, I don't know who, if it takes three hours to cook your turkey, you're not going to let it rest three hours. Mm-hmm. Um the, the resting has to do with, with the size, the mass of the meat being rested. So a steak might be just a few minutes, right? But, you know, a 20-pound turkey, you could probably let it sit around for half an hour, and it would still hold its temperature. I, I agree. You, you want to still serve it, you know, between warm and hot. Um, and if you lose a little bit of juice, that's fine. But I, I would say a, a big turkey, half an hour, I wouldn't let it rest any more than that. Um, the other thing is most turkeys today, like Butterball, are essentially brined, right? They have a saline s- solution injected in them. Mm-hmm. So it's probably not, you know, no matter what you do, the, the Butterball style supermarket turkey will turn out moist. Um, some people might even say too moist, but <laughs> yes. But I, I don't think you have to worry about resting a bird for hours now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question uh, uh, from my perspective on, on how much money you sp- should expect to spend on a bird. I've seen a couple of comparison videos on YouTube about this, but when it came time to uh, buy, uh, buy a turkey this, this year, while you know there were plenty of, of the normal butterballs, it was a little harder to find some of the uh, more specific things uh, that seem to uh, be in a, in a bit of a shorter supply. How much is, is the point where people don't get as much return? How, how much should they put effort into finding a, a, you know, a wild raised bird of some type? Uh, and and where's, the, where's the point where that, that just doesn't really give you a return on your investment? Well, yeah, I've been down this road, as you can imagine. I actually buy my turkey from a local farmer who sets one aside for me. But um, I, I don't know if I told you the story, but years ago, my neighbor in Vermont across the way brought a turkey she, she had raised. She had three turkeys. She had Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. Those were the names of the turkeys. <laughs> and uh, so she brought it over as heirloom bird and this and that, the other thing. And it turns out the legs were humongous. They were like, you know, T-Rex legs. Mm. And then the breast was small um, and the meat was tough, mm. you know. So, you know, my experience with that was was not great. Um, and I would almost say at this point, I, I think the turkey is there as a foundational element on the Thanksgiving table. And it's really about the gravy and the mashed potatoes. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I care much more about the gravy than the turkey. So I, I don't think spending twice as much on an heirloom bird and it's going to be harder to cook. And, you know, the, those butterball turkeys are foolproof. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 now, when it comes to chicken, I'm, a, I'm of a different mind because the difference between a really good 
you know, heritage style chicken. And the typical supermarket chicken is between edible and non-edible. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I would spend the money for a chicken. And, you know, and if you do it right, you can get lots of meals out of a four or five pound chicken. Mm-hmm. You know, it ends up as soup, right? So you can do a lot with that. So for turkey, eh, again, it's mm-hmm. the gravy that, that matters to me, less the turkey. Um, a, uh, to uh, go to a different protein uh, question, what's the secret to, perfe- to perfect brisket on the smoker? Trimming it right, injecting it, the rub, wrap, no wrap, the rest, what is it? Should you shoot sous vide before? I cannot get the, uh, for the life of me, I cannot get the flat and the point to come out right. Yeah, that's, uh, well, assuming there, he's talking about a whole brisket, so it's yeah. got the flat and the point. Um, I, I do it on a green egg. Um, I just did it this summer for a big birthday party. Uh, it was 10 or 11 pounds, I think, with both both parts. Um, and I just set it up to be really low, like 225, you know, 200 to 225, and let it smoke. Some people do say uh, you should wrap it. Um uh, during the cooking. So it stays moist. Um, I, I guess so, but the only problem with that is, you know, meat releases liquid, not because it's wrapped or not, it's just about internal temperature. And so once it gets up to a certain temperature, it tends to release it. Um, I think you want, you want to spend the money on the meat. You, you want a lot of fat in that brisket, right? So I'd say 80% of it is the cut. from the particular animal and two cook it low and slow in something like a green egg. And that'll do a pretty good job. But if you overcook it, he's right. Or she's right. It's going to get tough and it's going to dry out. So you want, you want to get it to the right temperature where it's the the connective tissue has dissolved, Mm. uh, but it's not overcooked. So my, my guess is you're talking 180 to 185 internal, something like that. Um, And on the sous vide question, uh, that seems to be something that, you know, caught on as being uh, a more widely used method in recent years, thanks to the availability of some of these different devices, um, some of which have gotten quite fancy. Uh, and personally, so I have one was a gift and and I have uh, I use it, but I use it relatively sparingly because I really only use it when I'm uh, making something for. Uh, multiple people and and don't really want to have to pay attention to it um do you think that i mean what is your approach to using sous vide do you use it regularly uh and and how is it properly used uh i have used it uh b i don't use it now (laughs) uh c i understand why people like it i mean i can understand for example to sous vide a steak to let's say 100 degrees take it out and finish it on a grill Um, that will develop flavor while it's coming up to temperature. Um, And you can get a perfect Turkey breast or whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can do, uh, you know, chicken, like chicken breasts, other things, and you don't have to watch it. So I I, I get it. It's just that, you know, I, I, I can roast a chicken in the oven and it's really not that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I can throw a steak in a 250 oven for 15 minutes to get it to 95 to 100 and finish in a skillet or on a grill. So the question is, is it something you're going to use on a regular basis? You know, um, the only, only convenience tool I do use frequently is the instant pot. Oddly enough, mm-hmm. um, I find that it helps organize the cooking and especially 
weekday, you know, weeknights. Um, for example, I do a version of Dorawat, which is, you know, the sort of a chicken stew from Ethiopia. It's, you know, three large onions, a third cup of a Berbera spice mix, which you can make up yourself, uh, and a bunch of, you know, chicken thighs. Uh, it cooks for 20 minutes or so and you're done. Um, and it's quite good. So my rule for those appliances is if it's, if it's a regular part of your repertoire, great. If you're going to use it once every two months, no. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a couple of instant pot questions. Uh, one is uh, how do we get Emily to stop making ribs in her instant pot? I believe that's a <laughs> reference to one of our writers. <laughs> um, should she make ribs in her instant pot? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the Instant Pot is good at breaking down foods, right? Uh, so, for example, I can make a great chicken stock uh, with just using chicken wings. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I did that for my turkey gravy this year. You get like three pounds of chicken wings, throw them with a little bit of water, and it's like you let it go for my, almost an hour, and you just get this great extraction of flavor. So I would say, yeah, you can do ribs in the pot. It will break down that connective tissue pretty well. Um, the, the problem is you probably don't get what you want, which is a nice glazed rib. It depends on what style you want, but you know, an instant pot is going to extract liquid and things tend to get saucy in them, mm -hmm. uh, sort of like a slow cooker. Uh, so if, if you want like a nice sticky glaze on something, I'm not sure about the instant pot, but it'll certainly break down tough foods. It's also great for things like beans, for example, and, we actually did a bunch of recipes. We actually tried pasta in it, which, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. It works, uh, but I'm not sure it's really saving you uh, any time because it doesn't take long to cook in boiling water. Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know that I have been there. So with the stresses of this last year, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? That's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it easy to catch your breath and make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. You're going to love their SOS mini meditations, for example, that just give you a quick breather. They relieve stresses and bring you a moment of peace amongst all of the daily chaos. Find some Headspace at headspace.com federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com federalist today. Headspace.com federalist. In the 1960s, as war raged in Vietnam, Americans were shocked to learn of documents leaked from the Pentagon that made them question their government's entire involvement in the conflict. The new season of Wondery's podcast, American Scandal, explores the Pentagon Papers, those highly controversial leaked documents that led Americans to demand an end to the catastrophic war. In the 60s, Daniel Ellsberg was a young government official who discovered that U.S. leaders were secretly escalating a war they knew could not be won. 
Sound familiar? As a result, thousands of men were drafted each year only to be senselessly killed. Once Ellsberg recognized this terrible truth, he made the bold decision to leak the documents now known as the Pentagon Papers, even if the consequences would land him behind bars for life. It's a story about self-sacrifice and justice, but it's also the story of Ellsberg's transformation from government operative to anti-war whistleblower and how his actions altered the course of American history. Listen to American Scandal, The Pentagon Papers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. So I, I have an Instapot and I have to admit that um, I, I think I've underutilized it because so many of my friends say that they use theirs uh, just as you do um, with, with great regularity. I'd like to use it more in the coming year. Um, in addition to the recipe that you just mentioned, which I certainly will look up and, and try, uh, are there a couple of other things that you would recommend trying in, uh, in an Instapot, especially if you're someone who is maybe used to a slow cooker uh, or to using the pot as, as kind of a, a rice cooker uh, style type thing, but you want to make more full meals in it? Well, the thing it's really good at is taking chicken parts, right? Especially dark meat, like thighs and legs, uh, and cooking them in 20 minutes uh, with a little bit of release time, maybe 10 minutes, and in creating a sauce, you know, quickly. Um, and, and yeah, you saute some onions and other stuff to start for 10 minutes and then throw them in. So I, I think chicken parts is probably the number one thing that's really good at it's also really good in any kind of stew so you have beef or lamb or pork in two inch pieces i, I keep them fairly large uh you know start out with the usual you know sofrito the onion garlic mix with some spice herbs throw in the meat uh, probably a little liquid and then close the pot uh and you're done i mean one of the ones we do we i really love is pork and it has miso and gochujang in it mm. Uh, it's got five or six ingredients and it is killer. I mean, it is really good and you can get that in and out of the pot quickly. So I'd say stews and chicken parts really are the things and beans. Uh, I do big black beans all the time on a Sunday, for example, big pot, and you can use those in different ways during the week. So beans, stews, meat stews, and chicken parts really are the three things I would do with it. Uh, a couple of questions about uh, uh, different uh, things to, to buy. Uh, what's the best value starter cookware uh, and any tricks for transitioning uh, to it from carcinogenic non-stick pans without wrecking all your food? Yeah. Um, well, that's a long topic. First of all, I, th this idea of starter cookware, I, I just don't buy it because yeah. if you buy starter cookware, it, it'll make you a much worse cook. Mm. I mean, the, the difference between using something like, you know, a, a three ply high quality pan and a single ply, you know, pan that I used back in the fifties uh, is night and day. So here's what I would get. I would get a carbon steel skillet um, and carbon, a, like an eight inch skillet. If you season it properly, it's not that hard. It's almost nonstick and you can cook eggs and stuff in it. I use it all the time. So you don't have to use nonstick. I would get a 12 inch cast iron pan. Uh, the newer ones are very highly polished on the inside. So they're low stick, I would say, not non-stick. I would buy a Dutch oven, uh, like a six-quart Dutch oven. There are companies out there that sell them for under 100 bucks, like 80 bucks. You can get a pretty good one. Um, and then I would get a like a three-quart saucepan that's three-ply. So I, I have four items. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, carbon steel, eight inch skillet, 12 inch cast iron, six quart, uh, Dutch oven, and then a three or four quart stock pot, or let's say a three quart, because you have the Dutch oven, a two or three quart saucepan. Mm-hmm. That's all you need of the four things. The, the thing that you say about, um, uh, starter, uh, uh cookware, uh, <laughs> There are many people who I believe still believe that their twenty dollar lodge cast iron skillet is the is the best thing that they have. Um, yeah. And how how well founded are they in that belief? Well, cast iron. Um, well, the, first of all, there's a whole new era of cast iron. Um, there are companies that make cast iron that are about 30 percent lighter, and as I said, the inside is more highly polished, so it's less stick, mm-hmm. but it, it retains heat because of the mass of the iron, right? So once you heat that up, it's a heat sink. So you're not going to get hot spots. If you put a cold piece of meat in it, it's not going to reduce in temperature. Uh, and you're much less likely to burn things. So it's, it's very even and very consistent. Um, and it's very good at transferring a lot of heat to food. So I think those are, you know, those are reasons to like cast iron. And it's cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not nonstick it's low stick, but it's great. Um, another thing to think about, uh, is a walk. Um, and you can get them cheaply. Um, and I've seen people use them in other parts of the world and they can steam in them, boil in them, fry in them, you know, stir fry in them. You can do a lot of stuff in a walk. Uh, and once you get to know how to use it, it's a pretty amazing tool. Um, and so if you're willing to invest a little time, that's a multi-purpose tool in the kitchen. And you can buy locks for 20, 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. They're not expensive. So th- that's a really worth looking into. What, uh, as a follow-on question, how does one, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me uh, how does one cook with enamel covered cast iron without digging the damn things to death? Well, Le Creuset, Staub, well, actually Le Creuset is probably the most, best known enamel coated cast iron. That's what I use. Um, and I use Staub cookware too, which is nice. I think the Staub has a different interior, which is, is not enamel per se. Um, it, it seems a little different than Le Creuset. And I, it, it seems like that holds up pretty well. Um, I've had Le Creuset for years and years and years. And, you know, I, I, yeah, it, it, it will discolor, you know, after a couple months of use. If you have a, we have a white one, for example, on our stove at all times. Yeah, the white turns off white and then, you know, <laughs> looks like it was left outside for a couple of years. Uh, <laughs> but but if you get over that, which you should, mm-hmm. uh, that just shows you've got kitchen cred. Um, mm-hmm. Then then it's fine. I, I don't find that it really chips too much. I don't really think that. And I'm not sure that's a problem if there was a tiny chip in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like enamel cast iron. I think it, um, it does a good job and it, it prevents obviously reacting with the cast iron underneath. So I, I don't think that's a big problem. It, it will not look new, you know, it'll look used, but that's okay. The, I've seen more than one ad this season. Uh, maybe they've been running them before, but for whatever reason this year, I've just seen a lot of them for air fryers. Why are people so obsessed with them and, and are they in any way worth it? I have no idea. And they're not, um, <laughs> we've tested them here. Um, look, 
the the, idea, the name is great. Whoever came up with air fryer was brilliant. It's just a great marketing thing. Um, but if you're expecting to get like French fries, you know, something that's really fried with that crunch, um, you'll be disappointed because mm-hmm. it's not going to deliver because uh, air frying is not the same as oil frying because you're not, you know, oil conducts heat better than air or, or misted air, whatever it is. Uh, so I would say it probably can do some things well. Some people tell me that uh, if you take f- sometimes frozen items, they're good at sort of reheating or heating up stuff like that. But if you, if you want really crunchy fried food, I would not, I, I mean, we've never had success with it here mm. versus the real thing. Now, some people refuse to fry the traditional way and, you know, maybe that's okay, but it's, it's not the same. I uh, wanted to ask you about the, uh, the, the kind of uh, college football or football season uh, staples that are, are out there. I'm sure that there are a lot of, of home cooks who would like to do something a little bit different than what they could order from Buffalo Wild Wings or the like. Uh, do you have any recommendations on that? Just some, uh, some maybe twists on the typical, uh, uh, you know, sauce drenched, uh, you know, kind of two wet uh, uh, f- uh, flavors that uh, are combined during uh, the college bowl game or Super Bowl season. I don't, you know, I, I might give you the same answer I gave you about Thanksgiving, which is maybe that's the right thing to eat when you're watching <laughs> a college ball game. I mean, I, I don't know. I find there are times when, look, you know, James Beard loved, you know, potato chips and Julia Child loves loved goldfish, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think that sometimes that's just the right thing. I think you can, though. Um, there's so many sauces out in the world, right? Uh, chili crisp sauce and gochujang based sauces and, and, you know, soy based sauces and boat sauces, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's a ton of these things out there. And so uh, I wouldn't change the base item, like the fried chicken wing or whatever it is. I, I, I just would change, change up the sauce. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an easy way of, of making a huge change in the experience. Uh, just using a, a more, less sweet, a little more sophisticated sauce. And you can buy these in jars. You don't even have to make them yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But chili crisp, for example, is just one of those things that's great. Uh, And I I have some of them in my pantry as well. So I I just change up the sauce. A few more uh, reader questions as we start to wind down. Uh, uh, Any American etiquette expert will tell you to never use a pasta spoon, but any old Italian grandma will snort at that while using her pasta spoon. Is there, is there one of them that's right? That's a good question. I, I, um, I never use a pasta spoon. I'm not sure if I've seen, I've been to Rome, I've been to Italy a few times. I can't remember seeing anybody at a restaurant or trattoria eating with a pasta spoon. I guess I wouldn't care one way or the other, particularly. Uh, I, I would say that, you know, the pasta, you see, it's changed in recent years, I think, but it used to be pasta was, you know, a first course, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't a lot of pasta. So you, you'd have a small amount or a risotto or whatever. 
And so it's not like you have this huge mound from uh, Lady and the Tramp, right? Uh, that you're trying to eat. So, um, and then you're on to the next course. But uh, I, I don't, I, I can't say I've ever seen anybody eat with this pasta with a fork and spoon in Italy. So I'm not sure if that, if the premise is right there. What is the perfect ratio, if it exists, of butter and cream to potatoes and mashed potatoes? That's a good question. Um, I, I did four pounds of potatoes this year and I think it called for two sticks of melted butter and, you know, a cup and a half of half and half or something. I, here's what I would do. I, I would, um, I, I would, first of all, you want to melt the butter and you want to warm the cream or half and half. Um, I would probably do a stick of butter for three or four pounds, not more. And then I would slowly add the half and half, the warm half and half. The, the, the fat and the butter is going to coat the starch granules and, and keep it lighter. Uh, and then add the half and half. But uh, I would do it slowly to get to the point where you like it. The problem, if you use too much, is the mashed potatoes tend to get soupy, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's, you don't want it. Mine was a little soupy this year, I have to say. So I, I would add it until you just get to the right point the, that you like. The other thing to think about is if you make mashed potatoes ahead of time, I would cut the amount of liquid by half. And then when it comes to serving, uh, put them in the pot, reheat them, and then start stirring in the warm uh, uh, dairy. Mm. And that way you, you refresh them but they haven't absorbed the full amount to begin with. So you won't add too much. That's a good trick. Mm. Uh, has non-milk being marketed as milk run its course, or are we going to be subjected to more of it in 2022? <laughs> I just heard, I just interviewed someone on my show about these future foods, uh, plant-based foods. And one of the things someone's making now is pea milk. As oh. the, you know, <laughs> and I'm going like, oh no, please, I, you know, we, we almond milk and then rice milk and this milk and that milk and oat milk and you know whatever. Um, no, I, I don't. I think we're we haven't even begun to see it. I, the, the the most interesting trend now is mycelium, which is a fungus, and they can grow it in vats and they can turn it into like uh, you know chicken McNuggets, mm-hmm. uh, turn it into protein like. Uh, things and that is seems to me is there'll be 10 more you know nut milks but mycelium is going to be the basis of all these foods going into the future but i gotta tell you i'm not the problem with these foods is they're all highly processed like you know some of these burgers have 20 ingredients yeah and many of them are highly processed ingredients they buy from big factories so why anybody i mean you know a hamburger is made from from beef it's got one ingredient, you know, <laughs> so why not eat that? I mean, I, I don't want to eat something with 20 ingredients, 15 of which are highly processed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like he- hemoglobin from whatever, from soy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, I'm not a big fan of all that stuff. Uh, I, uh, I have one more uh, finished question, but before that, I wanted to ask you, I know that last we talked, you talked about uh, having your, um, uh, your old fashions at the end of uh, yeah. around Christmas. Uh, I was curious if you have uh, a a particular uh, bourbon or rye that you go to yeah. for that, um, and or if it changes. If you if you kind of use something, but then sometimes you feel like something else, 
and and why you might use different things uh, uh, depending on how you're feeling. Um, no, uh, I am totally without imagination when it comes to the old fashioned because I've settled in for the long term, which is a Willet bourbon, um, which I like is nice and smooth. It's mm-hmm. not a really high proof bourbon. And then high West rye, mm-hmm. um, which I love. And so I mix 50% bourbon, 50% rye. The spiciness of the rye cuts through the sweetness of the bourbon. Um, I'll use a very small raw sugar cube. I uh, muddle that with uh, orange uh, and regular bitters uh, with a little bit of water um, to mix. Then I actually shake. I know this is crazy. I, I shake it with a Boston shaker about 20 times to chill it down and also to slightly dilute it because uh, according to a friend of mine who's a bartender, if you're over 85 proof in a drink, it's hard to taste um, the other ingredients in the bourbon, for example, mm-hmm. you, you just taste the heat of the alcohol. So I do that. And then I serve it very cold on fairly large cubes mm-hmm. and I drink it really fast. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, Harry Craddock, who was the famous bartender in London in the twenties at the American bar, he always said, you know, drink it cold, drink it fast. So I, <laughs> I, I follow in his footsteps. Uh, last uh, question is this uh, Christmas is great and warm and fun. Even January is novel, but February and March, oof. What is your ultimate cold, damp, dark season comfort food? The dish you make when you wake up on a Sunday and decide the afternoon will be devoted to cooking something that warms the home. Well, I think first of all, it's just cooking in the Sunday afternoon, which I do a lot. Um, I do, it's the time of year I do bake bread it's the time of year where I still do, I make a lot of apple pies. Um, I used to have a big root cellar, so I was still cooking out of there, but I still do that a lot. Um, and I try to cook something for the week that's going to hold. So a big pot of super stew. I think it's, um, for me, it's not so much what you're cooking. It's sort of the surround. The surround for me is uh, what I'm listening to. The surround for me is being in the kitchen the surround for me is I'm too busy to take care of the kids. So I have to cook, <laughs> which, is, which is really cheating, but I, <laughs> my wife has caught on to this a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> um, may, maybe, you know, making something for the kids, you know, at the same time, uh, baking cookies, doing something for the kids too. Uh, but it's just that idea of it's late Sunday afternoon, it's dark, it's cold and something's in the oven and you've probably broken up a bottle of wine by then. <laughs> uh, and I loved, I love listening to BBC Radio 4 Extra. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Alexa, play BBC Radio 4 Extra. It's, a, it's this really crazy station out of the BBC that plays sort of stupid old British comedies uh, and detective stories and Sherlock Holmes and all the other stuff. It's very <laughs> retro. You know, it's like they're always being an England station. Um, and I find that that just takes me out of time into another dimension. That sounds fantastic and sounds like a wonderful way to spend Sunday afternoon. Uh, yes. Christopher Kimball, thank you so much for joining us uh, again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Take care. 
I want to thank Christopher Kimball for joining us. It's such a great chance to learn from one of the smartest people in the world of food, and we always appreciate his time. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. Until we meet again, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.